Great singing. Twenty-six years ago, when Carol and I first began to systematically read the Bible together, beginning on a program of reading it through every year, by the grace of God, something that we have managed to do now every year for the last 26 years, and has paid great spiritual dividends in our life. I commend it, in fact, to every young couple that I do premarital counseling for, I commend it to them that they establish that practice as well as they begin their new lives together. But I remember in those early days of reading the Bible together, it was such a mystery to me. I'd only been a believer for a short period of time, just a few years, having come to faith at the very end of my junior year in college. So there was a lot about the Bible that was very mysterious to me, and particularly the Old Testament prophets. As we would read through those Old Testament prophets, I had no idea what they were talking about. And I remember the first time that we read through Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39 and and being puzzled over Gog and Magog. Who or what was that all about? I hadn't the foggiest idea, but I was determined to find answers to the question. So off we went to the local Christian bookstore to buy the biggest, cheapest Bible commentary we could find. Those are our two criteria. It had to be very thick and it had to be very cheap. It was only many years later that I came to realize that neither thickness nor price were good measures for the quality of a book. But we did. We bought a big, fat one that was within our price range and we brought it home. And every night as we would read the scripture together, then one of us would take turns reading what the commentary had to say about the passage we had just read in the Bible. Well, that commentary never did answer my question about Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. It's in the 12th chapter of 1 Chronicles that in verse 32, the writer tells us about the men of the tribe of Issachar. It's really just a Neat little statement tucked away there. The background for this is after the defeat of the house of Saul, that these men from the tribe of Issachar came to David where he was in in Hebron, and they wanted to join his army there, his growing army, and make him king. And the neat little expression there in First Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32, it says, the writer describes these men from the tribe of Issachar as men who understood the times. Men who understood the times. That is, these men knew that David had been chosen by God and had been anointed by the prophet Samuel to be the king of Israel. And although Saul was usurping the throne at that point, they knew that David eventually was going to be the man. He was to be God's king. And so when it says that these men understood the times, what the writer is saying is that these men were aware of what was going on in the world and they were making their decision accordingly. Now, that's commendable. That's a model that we should emulate. We should follow. Look around you. Open up your eyes. Look around you. Things are happening in this world. 
Open your Bibles up to Ezekiel chapter 38, page 867, if you're using a pew Bible. We are going to delve into Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. And in the process of looking at these two chapters, we're going to be introduced to three important aspects of an end-time battle so that we might be people who understand the times. So that we might be people who understand the times. Let me set a little context here for you, a little background behind Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39. The context in which these chapters are penned here in the prophecy of Ezekiel is the context of the news that Jerusalem has fallen to Babylon. That is, that the city has been overrun, the walls breached, and the temple destroyed. And it is just now reaching the ears of the exiles, the refugees that are located in Babylon, having been taken there in an earlier captivity. Ezekiel, who had trained to be a priest, and just before his 30th birthday, when he was ready to to go into the priesthood, he was carried away by Nebuchadnezzar, along with 10,000 other members, really of the kind of the ruling class of the nation of Israel, They were taken captive to Babylon in the year 597 B.C. It's now 12 years later. And news has reached them that Jerusalem has finally been destroyed. It has been overrun. While there among the exiles, Ezekiel, trained as a priest, is now a prophet or mouthpiece of God. And he is ministering to the exile community in a in a prophetic voice of God to them. He's preaching to them. He's speaking to them. On the, on the day, actually the night, of the news reaching their ears about the fall of Jerusalem, God gave him a series of messages. A messages that someday God would restore the nation and, and heal their divide bring them back together as a people and restore them to their land under David, their king. That message is in chapters 34 and 36 of Ezekiel. God further reinforced or confirmed this message of restoration and healing in chapter 37 of Ezekiel. And he did it through two illustrations. One was the Valley of Bones. You'll remember this. The dead bones that then are reassembled and come to life. And the illustration of the two sticks, each stick representing the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, that are brought together by Ezekiel and healed and made one stick. That is, the nation would be brought back together. So it's against this backdrop. The news arrives of the, of the overrunning of the city, the destruction of all their way of life as they knew it. These promises that God is going to restore and heal them someday. That we now find chapters 38 and 39. Against the backdrop here of this promised future restoration. God gives Ezekiel this amazing promise of a great and glorious deliverance in a battle against the armies of Gog. The armies of Gog. 
Now, the time frame for this great battle is clearly in the future. This is clearly a future battle. There has never been a historic battle that comes anywhere near matching the details of this prophecy. So this great battle lies somewhere out in the future for the nation of Israel. Chapter 38 gives a description of the battle. And then chapter 39, it is reiterated and expanded upon. So chapters 38 and 39 it's the same battle. It's given first in 38, and then it comes, he comes back to it in 39, and he expands upon the descriptions of what goes on there. The main villain in this whole account is a person by the name of Gog, G-O-G. The word means mountain. The word means mountain. And this person, according to chapter 38 and verse 15, he comes from the remote parts of the north. The remote parts of the north. And this person, Gog, is in command of a confederacy of nations that are determined to plunder Israel and destroy her. Now, all the geographical directions that are included in this prophecy, you have to remember, are all based on someone standing in Israel, probably in Jerusalem. So north is measured north from Israel. East is measured east from Israel. South is south from Israel. There's no west because that's the sea. So you've got to always keep that in mind. So the remotest parts of the north, that'll be important later. Now, various commentators have different ideas on when this great prophetic battle will occur. A few place it after the rapture of the church, but before the beginning of the seven-year tribulation. There are a few who place it here. And let me say at this point, I've included for you in your, in your bulletin again a handout. Almost everything I'm going to say is on that handout. But that's not permission to fall asleep. Okay? That just means I can talk as fast as I want. And you, if you can't keep up, it's there for you in the handout. So there are a few, I even gave you an example there in that handout, who placed this great battle after the rapture of the church, but before the beginning of the seven-year tribulation. Others place it at the end of the millennium, that is, at the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ here on earth. And they do that based on the reference in Revelation chapter 20, verse 8, to Gog and Magog, although I think that is probably just an allusion back to this battle rather than a, a description of the battle itself. Still others place it, and this is a very popular view, place it at the end of the tribulation in connection with what's called the Battle of Armageddon. That is, that it is just a description, uh, a different prophetic description of the great and final cataclysmic battle at the end of the seven-year tribulation period, commonly called the Battle of Armageddon. And each of these views has certain reasons behind it to commend them. But I am persuaded... This is where I go out on the limb. I have persuaded now, after my study of this section, that this prophecy is speaking of a battle that is fought just prior to the midpoint of the tribulation. That this battle occurs sometime within the first three and a half years of the tribulation period. That this battle and the circumstances that leading up to it 
are what bring about the worldwide rule of Antichrist. His persecution of Israel and the gathering of armies that ultimately eventuate in the final battle of Armageddon. So I don't see it before the tribulation. I don't see it at the end of the tribulation. I see it just before the midpoint. This timing seems to fit very, very well with what the prophet Daniel says in Daniel chapter 11, verse 44. I'll read it. Don't bother. Well, the prophet writes there, when rumors from the east and from the north will disturb him, that is Antichrist, and he will go forth with great wrath to destroy and annihilate many. Evidently, what is happening there, according to chapter 11, verse 42 of Daniel, Antichrist is in the middle of his great African campaign. That is that he is he is beginning to assault North Africa, in particular Egypt, as Daniel 11, verse 42. And in the middle of that African campaign, he has overrun Egypt. News comes to him. Well, I'll just read it to you. Daniel 11, verse 42 Verse, or excuse me, verse 44. Now pick it up in 42. And then he will stretch out his hand against other countries and the land of Egypt will not escape. He will gain control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt. Verse 44. But rumors from the east and from the north will disturb him. I think what's happening is he is in the middle of his, of his African campaign to to. to conquer North Africa. He has succeeded in conquering Egypt. And in the middle of that campaign, he hears news of a massive military buildup in the north and in the east. And in that news causes him to break off his African campaign and turn his armies around and march them north back into Israel to confront this threat that is looming on the horizon. Just before his armies arrive, according to Ezekiel 38:39, and we'll get there in a few minutes, God miraculously intervenes and destroys the threat. That leaves Antichrist in the position now to consolidate his power in Jerusalem and over the world. That is, his opponents, those that have been contesting his worldwide dominance, have been shattered by God. And it is at that point that Antichrist takes credit for the destruction himself, sets up the abomination of desolation, that is the idol of himself in the temple there at Jerusalem, proclaims himself Messiah, breaks his covenant with Israel and begins to mercilessly persecute the Jews. That's the timing sequence, I think, that works really well with this chapter. So with that for background, let's take a look at the three aspects of this future battle. The first aspect is that we must identify Israel's determined foe. We need to figure out who are these characters. So let me read the text for you. Ezekiel chapter 38, beginning in verse 1. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, set your face against Gog towards Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rush, Meshach and Tubal and prophesy against him and say, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against you, O Gog, prince of Rosh, Meshach and Tubal, and I will turn you about and put hooks into your jaws and I will bring you out and all your army, horses and horsemen, all of them splendidly attired, a great company with buckler and shield, all of them wielding swords. 
Persia, Ethiopia, and put with them, all of them with shield and helmet. Gomer with all its troops, Beth Torgamah from the remote parts of the north with all its troops, many peoples with you. Who are these characters? Well, it begins with this person, Gog, this person, Gog. He comes from, it says in verse two, the land of Magog. We'll come back to that in a minute. He is called in the New American Standard, the Prince of Rosh. Now, the Hebrew word Rosh means head or chief. And here it is. I think mistranslated by the New American Standard, although in the margin they give the other translation, which I think is the better one. This is probably an adjective, and it describes Gog as the chief prince or the head prince. That's what Rosh means. He is the chief prince. He is the head prince of Meshach and Tubal. That's exactly how the English Standard Version, that's how the New International Version, and that is how the margin in the New American Standard Version all handle the text here. I think it's correct. Set your face, verse 2 again, against Gog of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and prophesy against him. Verses 5 and 6 were introduced to five other nations, Persia, Ethiopia, Put, Gomer, and Beth Togarma. Most Bible commentators and ancient historians actually have a surprising level of agreement on who these ancient people groups are. Magog, we'll go back to that for a minute. Magog appears in Genesis chapter 10, verse 2, as a descendant of Noah's son, Japheth. Noah's son, Japheth. They are identified by the ancient Jewish historian Josephus as a people from the land of the Scythians. The Scythians. They were an ancient people, a warlike people, that lived in the mountainous region north of the Black and Caspian Seas. I've given you a map, by the way, that you can sort of identify these. Most of us, our geography of the world is rather limited. And certainly our geography of Central Asia is definitely limited. So I've given you there the Black and Caspian Seas. I've given you the whole map. So these people called Magog descended from a people group that lived originally in these areas north of the Black and Caspian Sea. That area is now modern Russia, southern Russia. Magog, or excuse me, Gog is the chief prince also, it says, of Meshach and Tubal. These people groups are from the region of eastern and central Turkey, just south of the Black Sea. Again, you can see them on the map. Over in verse 5, you're introduced to Persia, which is modern-day Iran. You are introduced to chapter 38, verse 5 again, Ethiopia. Not the Ethiopia so much that you and I know today. It is far more likely to be identified with what is now politically called the nation of Sudan. That would be the Ethiopia of that day. So we have Iran and we have Sudan. And then verse 5, we have Put. Put is 
what we know as modern Libya. Libya. So let's just review for a minute where we are. We have southern Russia. We have eastern and central Turkey. We have Iran. We have the Sudan and we have Libya. We're also introduced in verse six to Gomer. The tribes from Gomer originally are located north of the Caucasus Mountains. And they settled in northern Turkey. Settled in northern Turkey. And then finally, we have Beth Togarma. Josephus identifies these people group as what was called the Phrygians. They were originally settled in the area of Cappadocia, which is now eastern Turkey or Armenia, sometimes called Armenia. So these are the players. You can see that on your map. They circle Israel from the north, from the east, and the Sudan from the south. I can't help but noting as I look at these nations, their identification with the religion of Islam. The religion of Islam and not just Islam in its more benign forms, if there is such a thing, but its more militant version, more militant version of, of Islam. And according to the prophet, they are under the leadership and association of Russia. Fascinating, isn't it? I include a little picture there for you, by the way. I don't know if you saw that. Can you identify those two heads? Fascinating. They would appear side by side in a news picture, isn't it? So when and why does this northern confederacy attack Israel? When does it happen and why? Well, let's look at verses 8 through 11. After many days, you will be summoned. In the latter years, you will come into the land that is restored from the sword, whose inhabitants have been gathered from many nations to the mountains of Israel, which have been a continual waste. But its people were brought out from the nations, and they are living securely, all of them. And you, he's speaking about Gog here, you will go up. You will come like a storm. You will be like a cloud covering the land. You and all your troops and many peoples with you. Thus says the Lord God, it will come about on that day that thoughts will come into your mind and you will devise an evil plan and you will say, I will go up against the land of unwalled villages. I will go against those who are at rest that live securely, all of them living without walls and having no bars or gates. When does this happen? According to the prophet, it happens when the people of Israel have been regathered into their land from the nations Having returned now to that homeland, they are living there in peace and security. Peace and security. You notice the expression. It says you are living in unwalled villages. No bars, no gates. An unwalled village is, a, is an expression for people who have no threat of attack. There's no need for defensive walls, gates, or bars to, to prevent the enemy from coming in. So it's speaking of a time of peace. It's speaking of a time of security. It's speaking of a time when the nation will see no need for military installations or fortifications. When will that time be? Well, according to the ninth chapter of the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 9 and in verse 27, it says, And he, that is the prince of the people to come, that is 
the Antichrist who rises from the revived Roman Empire, he will make a firm covenant. And I told you last time that that is he will he will enforce. He will press down upon them a covenant with the many for one week, that is for seven years. And in the middle of those seven years, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate. When is it that Israel will live at peace in her land? When will she no longer fear attack? It appears to me that it will be sometime during the first three and a half years of the tribulation period. When Antichrist has signed his covenant of peace with her, when he has become her military support, he has become the one who guarantees her security, she will then be living at peace. Why do they attack Israel? What's in Israel that would draw this confederacy against them? Verse 12 gives it to us. It says, you come to capture spoil and to seize plunder, to turn your hand against the waste places which are now inhabited and against the people who are gathered from the nations who have acquired cattle and goods who live at the center or literally the navel of the world. They are the belly button of the world. Israel. It says they come to to plunder the people, to seize their material wealth, to overrun the nation. Now, I have to confess, I, I, was, I am not as, as well informed about the nation of Israel as I want to be and I need to be. So I'm, I'm working on resolving some of that. And in the providence of God, though, I came across an amazing article in the Weekly Standard magazine dated July the 27th, 2009. So that's just last week's magazine. It's a magazine. There's an article in that magazine that's devoted to speaking about prosperity, the prosperity of the nation of Israel. And I was shocked when I read it. According to this article, Israel is living in a time of great prosperity right now. Her economy has suffered only minimally from the effects of this worldwide recession that's been going on. Her economy is fueled by the highest per capita scientists and technicians in the world. That is, there are more scientists, more technicians in Israel per capita than any other nation in the whole world. She has a thriving high-tech industry that is third only behind Boston and Silicon Valley worldwide. It was amazing. The article listed a number of, of technological advancements that you and I are very familiar with and commonly used that were all apparently invented in Israel, and I had no idea, including the cell phone. Israel is awash in materialism right now. Her prosperity is massive. I find that very, very interesting in light of the geopolitical situation all around her. We must identify Israel's determined foe. Secondly, we must marvel at Gog's crushing defeat. The enemies of Israel are gathered like a storm cloud, it says, verse 9, chapter 38. They are seeking to overrun the center of the earth. 
But in reality, and this is the important thing, in reality, they are mustering to fight against God. They are mustering to fight against God. Look down at verse 16. God specifically says there that you will come up against my people, Israel, like a cloud to cover the land. It will come about in the last days that I shall bring you against my land in order that the nations may know me when I shall be sanctified through you before their eyes, O God. Israel belongs to God. It is his land. It is on loan, as it were, to the Jews. But it is God's land. And they are God's chosen people. And so this Northern Confederacy in coming against Israel in reality is coming against God himself. This is not just a geopolitical battle played out on humanity. And you remember last week we talked about the demonic warfare that's going on behind these world empires. God says, you attack Israel, you attack me. You're attacking me. And because of that, God in His great fury, look at verse 18, and it will come about on that day when God comes up against the land of Israel, declares the Lord God, that my fury will mount up in my anger and in my zeal, verse 19, and in my blazing wrath. You get the idea here that God is not happy about all of this. This attack is really an attack on Him and He is going to deal with it. And he deals with it by supernaturally smashing these armies upon the mountains and fields of Israel. Chapter 39, look at verse 3 and following. And I shall strike your bow from your left hand and dash down your arrows from your right hand. And you shall fall on the mountains of Israel, you and all your troops and the peoples who are with you. I shall give you as food to every kind of predatory bird and beast of the field. You will fall on the open field, for it is I who have spoken, declares the Lord God. It is God's battle and it is God's victory. He's the one who smashes them on the mountains of Israel. And how does he do it? He does it by means of natural disasters. Let your eyes go back up to verse 19, chapter 38. And it says, I declare that on that day there will surely be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. And the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the field, all the creeping things that creep on the earth and all the men who are on the face of the earth will shake at my presence. The mountains also will be thrown down. The steep pathways will collapse and every wall will fall to the ground. And I shall call for a sword against him on all my mountains, declares the Lord God. Every man's sword will be against his brother. And with pestilence and with blood, I shall enter into judgment with him and I shall rain on him and on his troops. And on the many peoples who are with him, a torrential rain with hailstones, fire and brimstone. And I shall magnify myself and make myself known, declares the Lord God. How does he smash the armies of Gog? Well, apparently it begins with a massive earthquake. Israel, by the way, is, is a very seismically active part of the world. There is a massive earthquake, evidently, that then begins to lead to these other judgments. And these judgments, in turn, so unnerve the coalition that they begin to turn on one another. That the various armies that Gog is unable 
to hold his coalition together, his armies together. And they begin to turn on each other because, you know what, they are naturally antagonistic towards one another. They may hate Israel, and that's the only thing that unites them is their hatred of Israel. But there is a hatred of one another as well. This brings about their complete destruction, their complete destruction. This, by the way, is should remind you of several Old Testament passages. Judges chapter seven, verse twenty two First Samuel, chapter 14, verse 20. God has acted in this way more than one time in the past. He has used natural disaster to unnerve the armies coming against his people, Israel, to the place where they begin to turn on one another and they actually slaughter one another. This is very much in keeping with God's prior activities. Now, the result of this great slaughter, according to chapter 39 and verse 12, is that Israel will be busy burying bodies for seven months. Verse 12, 39, for seven months, the house of Israel will be burying them in order to cleanse the land. There will be so many slain that it will take them seven months to bury them all. And even then, after that, the text says that they will send out parties throughout the land, scouting parties, looking for the odd bone or two laying on the ground. And they will tag it and then the graves registration kind of an idea. And then later people will come along and retrieve it and bury that, too. Furthermore, as a result of the great slaughter, they will be burning the weapons for seven years. Verses nine and ten, chapter thirty nine. Then those who inhabit the cities of Israel will go out and make fires with the weapons and burn them, both shields and bucklers, bows and arrows, war clubs and spears. For seven years they will make fires of them, and they will not take wood from the field or gather firewood from the forest, for they will make fires with the weapons. And they will take the spoil of those who despoiled them and seize the plunder of those who plundered them, declares the Lord God. Now let me just say something here. The prophet is using, I believe, language that is appropriate to his time. He's speaking about shields and bucklers and bows and arrows and war clubs and spears and so forth. Because if he spoke about modern implements of warfare, it would go right over the top of the head of his contemporary. So he's using their language. But don't somehow think that that means this final battle is going to be fought with shields and swords and spears. I don't think at all that's what he's talking about. And even the burning here, we're talking about... The burning of the of the implements of war, it could well be the petroleum products that were there to fuel this mighty army. The fuel dumps that they capture could easily be what's being talked about here in terms of the seven years of burning. Which, by the way, if I'm right about the timing of all this, means that it's going to carry into the first few years of the millennial kingdom. They will still be destroying and disposing of the battlefield equipment that is left here. So I said earlier, it's my persuasion that Antichrist will claim responsibility for the defeat of Gog. Before his armies arrive, they will be destroyed and they will be destroyed in a way that is clearly supernatural. There'll be no denying that it was a supernatural destruction of this overwhelming enemy force. I believe that Antichrist will use that opportunity to present himself as Messiah. He will claim that he is the one who has done it. And it will be the basis of his claim for divinity, a lie that according to Second Thessalonians, chapter two, verses 11 and 12, that the majority of the world will willingly embrace, willingly embrace. 
We must identify Israel's determined foe. We must marvel at God's crushing defeat. Third, we must understand God's glorious purpose in all of this. Why would God permit such awful events to occur? Why? Why would He do that? The answer, and and clearly He does it, by the way. It says back in verse 4, chapter 38, I will turn you about and put hooks into your jaws, and I will bring you out, you and all your army. They will be drawn by God. Why? Chapter 39, verses 21-22. And I shall set my glory among the nations, and all the nations will see my judgments which I have executed, and my hand which I have laid on them. And the house of Israel will know that I am the Lord their God from that day onward. Beloved, the history of Israel is a history of unbelief, Divine judgment, spectacular deliverance, and faltering faith. And then it happens all over again. Unbelief, divine judgment, spectacular deliverance, and faltering faith. It goes over and over and over again. You can't read the Old Testament without seeing that pattern. But someday that cycle will be broken. It will be broken in it. I believe it will be broken here. That this battle is what will break it. Back in chapter 36, verses 24 to 28, the prophet says Israel will be completely cleansed and will never again wander from her God. Listen to verse 22 again, chapter 39. And the house of Israel will know that I am the Lord their God. Look at the end of it. From that day, how long? Onward. That is forever. Forever. This will break Israel's stubborn pride. This will be the beginning of Israel's repentance and return to the Lord. This will be the beginning of faith and embracing of Christ as Messiah. Uh, an embrace that will grow as the, as the tribulation period is poured out on them with increasing intensity till they are ready at the end of it all when the, when the armies of the world are gathered against them and Christ returns and destroys them at that point they will fully embrace their Messiah. This is God's means of preparing Israel to receive Christ. But it goes beyond that. It has value for the Gentile world as well. The Gentile nations of this world are stubbornly and arrogantly arrayed against God. But they will be broken. They will be broken. God will put hooks into their jaws. And in order, just like Pharaoh of old, he may draw them to their place of destruction. God does not create evil in in their hearts. He doesn't need to. There's plenty of evil there already. All He does is direct it to the place where He wants it to be that He might smash them on the mountains of Israel. This is the crushing of Gentile nations. A crushing that begins here and culminates again in the final battle. It's really interesting to me. Book of Revelation chapter 7. Speaking about the second half of the tribulation, it tells us that a great multitude turned to Jesus. A great multitude of people from every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, according to verse 9, chapter 7, turn in faith to embrace Jesus Christ. It further says in verses 13 and 14 that these tribulation saints are severely persecuted by Antichrist and most of them are martyred for their faith. What causes them, what 
What causes the world that presently despises Christ to begin to turn to Him in great numbers? Particularly when doing so most likely leads to your death. I think we find the answer here in this battle. I think the answer is here. There is such a display of divine power that people's eyes are blown wide open and they take a look at this and they realize who Christ really is. It is the destruction of Gog, I believe, that brings about the great revival that occurs during the second half of the tribulation period. Look around, beloved. Look around you. It is very, very clear for those who have eyes to see that the end game is upon us. It is here. We do not know when these events will break forth, do we? But I'll tell you one thing that I do know. It's always darkest right before the dawn. Are you a person who understands the times? Are you ready for the return of Jesus Christ? There is only one way to be ready. And that is by faith in His atoning sacrifice. Jesus came the first time as a suffering servant. He came to die. He came to take the place of His people. That, that their condemnation, their punishment, their guilt, He Himself would take upon Him and die on that cross in their place. And when they put their faith in that sacrifice, believing in Him and not themselves, to make them right before their Creator, the Bible says they have everlasting life. And thus nothing to fear. Because Christ is returning again, beloved, just as surely as He came the first time, He is coming again. But when He comes this time, it will be eyes flaming with fire. It will be a rod to smash the rebels. It will be to establish His kingdom in power. Are you ready? Are you ready for His return? Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your sovereign purposes. They are so beyond our comprehension. And yet, Lord, You stoop to stutter, as it were, and speak to us in baby talk, giving us glimpses of what You're going to do and why You're going to do it. And it is these glimpses, our Father, that are greatly strengthening to our faith. We thank You for such kindness towards us. Lord God, please strengthen us in our faith. Lord, the world presses in on us. It seeks to overwhelm us. The trials and tribulations of this life, short and severe as they may be, pale in comparison to eternity. So our Father, even in the midst of it all, may You enable us to look up. For our redemption draweth nigh. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Maranatha. Maranatha.